Okay, Revelation chapter 19. Let's open our Bibles uh, there, please. Charles Dickens was the author of a famous novel. One of them was called The Tale of Two Cities. And that is a good description of this final section of Revelation. In chapter 17 and 18, we've seen the city of Babylon, religious and commercial Babylon, which represents the evil world system. While in chapters 21 and 22, we see the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, the eternal home which the Lord is preparing for us. Now, of course, this final section of Revelation could also be called the tale of two women. One being the great whore of Babylon and the other being the beautiful bride of the Lamb. And both of those women are mentioned here in this section, chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. With chapter 17 and 18 as a background, as chapter 19 begins, John receives new revelation concerning the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth. In verses 1 to 10, The emphasis is on what John heard. He heard a special announcement in preparation for the return of Christ. But then in verses 11 to 21, John tells us what he sees. In prophetic vision, he sees the actual return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The return of the Lord Jesus Christ brings to a close the great tribulation and all its associated events. And it ushers in a glorious millennial kingdom, which is described in the first part of chapter 20. That is the a thousand year reign of Christ upon the earth. Now it's interesting that Dickens' novel, The Tale of Two Cities, begins this way. It was the best of times and it was the worst of times. And that too is a good description of Revelation. The great tribulation will be the worst of the worst time that the world has ever known followed by the best time the millennial age where Christ rules and reigns in righteousness upon the earth for a thousand years now the next time we're in revelation we'll look at the rest of chapter 19 after that we're into chapter 20 but tonight we're looking at the first 10 verses of chapter 19 and a single word captures the heart of this passage it's the word alleluia appears four times verse 1 3 4 and 6 the word alleluia is the greek form of the hebrew word hallelujah and that comes from two hebrew words the first being hallelujah which is an intensive verb in the imperative, meaning give praise. And the second Hebrew word is the name of God in a shortened form, that is Jah. It means praise Jehovah or praise ye the Lord. That word occurs 22 times in the book of Psalms and is the opening and closing exhortation in the last five psalms. Psalm 146 through to Psalm 150. It's a word that is pronounced the same way in many languages. 
It's the happy expression of God's people because we have much to praise God for. In 1741, George Friedrich Handel wrote his masterpiece, The Messiah, with the most famous oration being the Hallelujah Chorus, which rejoices in the person and work of Christ and anticipates his second coming. It's a tradition around the world that when the Hallelujah Chorus begins, the audience stands and remains standing until it's complete. In heaven, however, they respond differently. Instead of standing, verse 4 tells us they fall down and worship. They worship God who's seated upon the throne because, verse 2, tells us he's judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth. Actually, heaven's hallelujah chorus is a response to the command back in chapter 18, verse 20, to rejoice over her judgment. It's also a response to the marriage of the Lamb and the marriage supper. It's also a response to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ at the second advent, second part of chapter 19. It's also a response to the millennial kingdom. It's described in the first six verse chapter 20. Satan's final judgment and the great white throne judgment also mentioned in chapter 20. It's also a response to the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, which are the subject of chapters 21 to 22. There's a lot of bad things that have been said in the book of Revelation, a lot of bad news, but praise the Lord. There's good news, there's great news. Great news has arrived because the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. He's the King of Kings, He's the Lord of Lords, and the response of those who love Him and serve Him is to be nothing less than unabated, unhindered, enthusiastic praise and Worship. This day is a day which many Christians have longed for. It's a day which the saints of the ages have longed for and in prophetic revelation it's finally arrived. Praise the Lord. Now there's three main points to this passage and uh, we've recorded them on the outline sheet for this evening. First of all, <clears throat> In the first six verses, we see that there are numerous manifestations of praise. Firstly, in verse 1, there is the hallelujah of redemption. And after these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God. The verse begins with the phrase, and after these things, we have to ask, after what things? After the visions of chapter 17 and 18, especially after the fall of Babylon, in chapter 18, verse 20, there's a call to rejoice over Babylon's destruction. And here we see heaven's response to that call. They sing out, hallelujah. I've called this the hallelujah of redemption because the first note of praise is for salvation. Heaven rejoices specifically, specifically because Salvation has come for God's people and the glory and the honour and the power that belong to God are being put on display. The word salvation there celebrates the final aspect of salvation history. Christ is about to appear with his church to complete the redemption that he began at Calvary. Now the overthrow of Babylon marks the end of organized evils that have plagued the earth for so long. 
evil things that are so entrenched in society that no amount of legislation can root them out. It's gone far too deep. And the only hope for the world is the return of Christ. And in anticipation of that glorious moment, when Christ returns to complete his work of redemption, heaven bursts forth in praise. There's one final conflict that remains. That's Armageddon, second part of chapter 19. But then after Armageddon, the swords of men will be beaten into plowshares. The earth will be redeemed. The lion and the lamb shall lie down together. And while Satan is the god of this world now, Christ holds the title deed to the earth. And the day is coming when he will possess that which he owns by right, by creative right and also by redemptive right. Notice that the shout of praise in heaven is given by much people. Remember back to the time when the disciples asked Jesus if there would be just few who would be saved. Jesus' answer is here. Much people, much people in heaven will lift up their voices and praise. Brethren, let us join in the chorus. The great day of deliverance for creation will surely come and for that we praise the Lord. Secondly, there is a hallelujah of retribution, verses 2 and 3. A hallelujah of righteous retribution, for true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with a fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, hallelujah, and the smoke, and her smoke rose up forever and ever. All of God's judgments are true and righteous. The great whore has received just retribution for her evil. And her doom is an everlasting witness to the righteous judgment of God. He has avenged the blood of his servants who have died at her hand. So the hallelujah expressed here is because God has gotten the victory over his foes. No, God is not vindictive. God is not capricious in his judgment. He is totally true and righteous. He's a God of perfect justice. If God were to t- turn a deaf ear to all of the sin and all of the wickedness and all of the injustice and all of the suffering in the world, then he would not be true and would certainly not be just. In his love and in his patience, God stays his hand so long that it would seem at times that he doesn't care about all the wrongs going on in the earth. The ages roll on. Wickedness flourishes and ripens and bears fruit and multiplies. We instinctively cry out for justice. And God is just. And in the end, will act. And his judgment, when at last it is unleashed, proceeds along the lines of truth and righteousness and falls in wrath and indignation upon all that is false and wrong. Brethren, it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God for judgment. No, we don't rejoice over the sinfulness of Babylon, nor do we even rejoice over the greatness of its fall. We rejoice that God is true and righteous and that he's glorified in his holy judgments. 
Thirdly, there's the hallelujah of realization. Verse 4. The four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne, saying, Amen, Alleluia. And a voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. The elders and the living creatures join in this Hallelujah chorus as the volume of praise gains momentum. And I see in this third hallelujah, the hallelujah, the praise the Lord for his greatness. A realization of the greatness of God. And this corresponds to some degree to the first time that this word, the Hebrew word appears in scripture. It appears when David brought the ark back to Jerusalem. There's a great feast of rejoicing was held as a celebration concerning it. And the ark was to Israel a reminder of the realization of God's greatness and God's majesty. And brethren, blessed is that Christian who sets aside time each day to enter into the holy place, to read God's word and to pray in order that we might contemplate the glory and the greatness of our God. For to contemplate the glory and the greatness of our God is to awaken wonder and awe and praise in every believer. Notice verse 5 says, A voice came out of the throne. Could be an angel. Could be one of the living creatures. Could even be one of the elders. The text doesn't specify who, but it does record what. The voice said, the voice said, praise our God. In, all, in other words, sing hallelujahs. And who is to respond to this exhortation? All his saints, ye that fear him, both small and great. Note that in this statement, there's no discrimination or segregation in worship. All social and economic and national distinctions are transcended and removed in worship of God by his people. Before God, all believers, as blood-brought possessions of the Lord Jesus Christ, are equally his redeemed servants, as we heard this morning. There's no room for racism in the church because none of it exists before the throne of God in heaven. This is actually the last time that the elders and the living creatures are mentioned in the book of Revelation. They first appear back in chapter 4. When the throne, the symbol of God's sovereignty and greatness is introduced. And they appear finally here to say a hearty amen to God's judgments and a joyful hallelujah because of the glorious triumph of his throne. And so we'll leave them there, prostrate before God in worship. The attitude in which they're always found when the greatness of God is asserted. And from their standpoint in history, the greatness of God, no less the salvation of God, is seen as something eminently worthy of praise. Fourthly, there is the hallelujah of Christ's reign. Verse 6. 
And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude and the voice of many waters and the voice of mighty thundering saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. This final shout of praise come from the hosts of heaven. King David wrote, let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad and let men say among the nations, the Lord reigneth. Why not? For centuries, people have been praying, thy kingdom come. And now that prayer is being answered. The time for the reign of king of kings has come. The hallelujah time for heaven and earth is at hand. It's the hour for the king to be set upon his holy hill in Zion to receive the uttermost parts of the earth for his possession. It's the moment when every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's the moment anticipated by all of the redeemed. When Jesus came the first time, he was rejected, nailed to a cross. When he comes again, all men, rich and poor, high and low, will bow before his feet in homage. Praise the Lord. The heavenly hosts have at least four reasons to praise the Lord. And brethren, we have the same reasons. And may our praise be on earth as it is in heaven. But from these manifestations of praise, the focus then shifts to the marriage of the Lamb. Verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honour to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. The great event to which the Lord and the church have looked forward has at last arrived. The marriage of the Lamb has been a long look for event of the ages. The central figure in the attraction is the bridegroom, the lamb. He's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in our culture, in most weddings, the focus is very much on the bride. It's the bride who gets most of the attention. There are bridal shops, there's bridal showers, there's fashion shows for brides, there's special luncheons for brides and her bridesmaids. At the actual wedding ceremony, all the guests watch for her appearing. I mean, the groom is there. He's there in a rented suit usually, but he is there. It's all about the bride. And then at the right moment, at the exact moment, we're invited to stand. Special music is played, which announces, you know, here comes the bride. But note in verse 7. The heavenly multitude is heard in one united voice saying, let us be glad and rejoice and give honour to him. Here comes the bridegroom. The lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. Now it was said of Babylon back in chapter 18 verse 23, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. But now that the great whore has been judged and destroyed, the true church, which is the bride of Christ, 
is now brought back into view. There's been no mention in the book of Revelation of the church since chapter 4, where she was caught up into heaven. And during the tribulation period, the saints were in heaven being prepared for this important event. The commentator David Levy points out that the marriage of the Lamb is patterned after the Jewish marriage customs of Bible times, which there were four phases. Phase one is the arrangement. The fathers of the bride and groom would come to an agreement that their children would marry at some point in the future. Then the bridegroom's father had to pay a bride price as a dowry and the bride price paid by God the Father was nothing less than the precious blood of Christ. Phase two is the preparation or the betrothal. This phase would last for an extended period of time during which the bride was observed to display her purity. During the betrothal period, the bridegroom would prepare a home for his bride-to-be. That home was attached to his father's home. and just built another wing on the father's house. And in like manner, Christ is in heaven. He's in the father's house preparing a place for his bride, the church. On the wedding day, the groom would leave his father's house to go and fetch his bride. He would arrive for her with sound of trumpets. And then after taking her from her home, the groom would lead his bride and the bridal procession back to his father's home, the new home. Of course, it's a beautiful picture of the rapture of the church caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Phase three is the marriage ceremony. In biblical times, the bride was beautifully adorned like a queen with precious jewels in her hair and on her clothing, long veil covering her face. The ceremony was conducted in the home of the the groom. At some point, the couple would leave the guests and actually consummate their marriage. And again, this is a beautiful picture of the church where we see Christ, the heavenly bridegroom, consummate his marriage with his bride here in verses 7 and 8. Phase 4 is the marriage supper to which the friends of the bride and groom were invited to rejoice with them over their marriage. After a season of feasting together, which could last actually for days, the couple would then settle in their new home prepared by the groom. And that's our final heading, which we'll get to in a moment. But no longer is the church marred by conflict tainted by division and soiled with heresy. Rather, as predicted by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, Christ will present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. She will be holy and without blemish 
What a cause for celebration. I want you to notice two statements concerning the Lamb's wife. Verse 7, second part, And his wife hath made herself ready. And then in verse 8 it says, To her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. So verse 7 states that the bride is ready. Verse 8 states that the bride is robed. But we have to ask, why is it stated that she's made herself ready? And we have to ask, why is she robed in clean and white righteousness of saints? Isn't salvation dependent upon the imputed righteousness of Christ? Isn't salvation entirely of grace and not by works of righteousness, which we have done? Questions to explore. In the Greek text, the word righteousness is actually plural. Literally, righteousnesses. Or righteous deeds or doings of the saints. Here, the righteous deeds of the saints are not to be confused with the righteousness of God, which is imputed to each believing sinner at the point of conversion. No sinner can work for that righteousness. It's only received by faith. And it's true of all unsaved people that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. But when we receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Saviour, we can say that we're dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne. However, that which is in view here in verse 8 are the righteous acts of the saints, the right doings which the saints did while here on the earth. And it is sad but true that not all saints are ready to, will be ready to meet Christ when he comes for his church. Indeed, the scripture predicts that some will be ashamed before him at his coming. Sadly, many saints do live carnal and fleshly lives. They are unfit garments to wear on their wedding day. And so while God is preparing the earth for the reign of his saints, he also must prepare the saints to be presented to the earth. The fact that the Lamb's wife has made herself ready, suggests that she wasn't ready before. Too many Christians, I think, have assumed the attitude that just because they're saved, they can live careless lives and nevertheless be assured of going to heaven. It's true that when Christ appeared at the rapture, all the saints of the church age, both living and dead, will be caught up to meet the Lord. But before we can reign with him, there must be a a reckoning. There must be a readiness. But the scripture says, so then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. The scripture says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 
that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Brethren, has it ever occurred to you that at the marriage of the bride to the Lamb, each one of us will be wearing a garment of the righteousness of saints. It's a garment, in a sense, of our own making. Now we have to confess to our shame that the bride is not now ready for that wedding. There are many carnal Christians, selfish Christians who live worldly lives. And all such must pass through the fires of the judgment seat of Christ to qualify to reign with Christ. The dross of our lives needs to go. The wood, hay and stubble of our lives needs to be removed. The judgment seat of Christ which follows the rapture will not be a happy experience for many Christians. Perhaps some of us will be there And for us, it'll be a time of loss, a time of shame. But we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ for the final inspection, the necessary readiness for the the marriage, the wedding gown then. will be made up of the good works that remain after the testing at the judgment seat of Christ. Now you understand about the, about the wedding garment. And now we can see in what sense the bride makes herself ready. After the marriage ceremony, we have the marriage supper, which we read about in verses 9 and 10. And he said unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called under the marriage supper of the Lamb, And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I'd like to highlight two things in these verses. First of all, the the blessing of the guests. Verse 9 says, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, as we've already mentioned, the marriage supper is a separate event from the marriage itself. They are different phases. And those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb are invited guests. Every wedding has its guests. And the guests are not the bride. Certainly the bride is not invited to her own wedding supper. She is a place of honour next to the bridegroom. It's quite possible that the guests here are the Old Testament saints and those that have been saved during the tribulation who were resurrected at the second advent of Christ. Remember John the Baptist who died before the death of Jesus. He'll be there as one of those guests. Remember he said he called himself the friend of the bridegroom. Marriage takes place in heaven. But it would seem that the marriage supper occurs upon the earth. 
when the bridegroom returns with his bride, that is, at the second advent in the millennium, into the millennium. You know, in Bible times, the length of the marriage supper depended upon the wealth of the host, the wealth of the person hosting the feast. And since our Heavenly Father owns everything, this will be a wedding supper, the longest in history, thousand years. This, I believe, explains the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25. There's also another parable that Jesus spoke about wedding and wedding garments in Matthew 22. And this also fits well into this understanding of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Imagine the gathering for that kind of supper. Christians sometimes speculate about this feast. Will it be a literal banquet or just symbolic of indescribable blessings? Will it be a sit-down multi-course dinner or an extravagant buffet? What kind of food would be served? Perhaps silly questions. These sorts of questions do tantalise the imagination, but I think they completely miss the point. The great banquet is not all about the menu. It's all about the master. It's all about the bridegroom. It's the end time answer to Jesus' words to his disciples at the Last Supper when he said, But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Matthew 26, 29. When the Lord Jesus Christ returns to the earth with his bride, all of God's people will enjoy a long-anticipated face-to-face fellowship With the ones, with the one that they love, and he with the ones he loves. Finally, in verse 10, we have the mistake of John. It's to John's credit that he mentions it. It's usually Peter who says the wrong thing or does the wrong thing. But this time it was John who hard to believe that a man in his situation like that would make a mistake like this. John was so carried away by the wonders of the revelation being revealed to him by this angel, it says that he fell down to worship him. And he, that's the angel, said unto me, See thou do it not, for I am thy servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. John's great mistake was to worship an angel. A mistake which has been repeated again and again and again at different times in church history, certainly by the professing church. But notice the angel describes himself as thy fellow servant. And the Greek word for servant that he used there is the the common Greek word for slave. Those angelic beings, those glorious beings who surround the throne of God, who hang upon every word of Jesus, who rush to do his bidding, who at his command delight to be ministering spirits unto the most humblest of God's children. They count it their greatest delight, their highest dignity to be slaves of the Lord Jesus. And John receives a quick and stiff rebuke. Don't do that. Three reasons are given. First, because I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. 
He said, I'm a fellow brother with you, to us, to you and to me. We've been given the, the testimony of Jesus. We are to be faithful witnesses to Jesus. It's all about him. Don't worship me. Second, you must instead worship God. Don't do that. You must instead worship God. And the implication is clear. We're to worship God and only God. 1 John 5, 21 says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And third, the third reason given is because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The true spirit of prophecy always points to Jesus. The message that I'm giving you, the things that I'm revealing to you, the prophetic things that I'm revealing to you, it's all about Jesus. And to exalt Jesus, that's the message of prophecy. To exalt Jesus, that's the message of the messenger. Don't fall down and worship the messenger. His job is to point us to Jesus. Purposes of prophecy, all prophecy, essentially is to bear witness to the person and work of Jesus Christ as God's perfect solution to the evils of the universe in both his first and second advents. All scripture points ultimately to the person and work of Christ, either in his pre-incarnate glory, in his incarnation and earthly ministry, or in his death and resurrection, his ascension, his present ministry, his glorious return. This the Lord Jesus Christ made perfectly clear to his two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Luke chapter 24. He said unto them, O fools and slow of hearts, to believe all that the prophets have spoken, Ought not Christ, according to the prophets, to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? Didn't the prophets say that? And then beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. All of the scriptures, all prophetic scripture points to Christ. Worship him. Praise him. There's a powerful point here that we must not miss. John shows us that it is possible to have inappropriate responses to the message of God's word. John shows us it's possible to have inappropriate responses to the message of God's word, even when God's word is faithfully delivered. Well, what are some appropriate responses to God's message to us tonight? Let me give you three as we close. Firstly, let's remember that God reigns. Let's remember that God reigns. Remember this. When the, when the twilight falls and dark loneliness begins to set in, remember that God reigns. Even when the business deal doesn't turn out the way that we hoped it would. Remember, God reigns. Even when the romance doesn't blossom as you hoped it would. Remember, God reigns. When the effects of sin threaten to undo your family, when pain drives you to your wit's end, or when tragedy threatens to plunge you over the edge, God is still in control. He alone exercises control over all things. God can give and God can take away. What's your response to the fact that God reigns? 
leave all things in his hands. Secondly, remember that only the lamb is worthy of your worship. Only the lamb is worthy of your worship. He alone is to be the object of our affection. He alone is the subject of our praise. Only the lamb. You know, too often we get caught up with people and things. Eyeing even our possessions with the kind of affection that's meant only for the Lord. Things that we build and live in. Things that we buy and drive. Things that we wear. People that we love and cherish. Parents we honour. Children we adore. Spouses and friends we couldn't live without. Yes, all of these things are blessings from the Lord. But they can quickly become objects of our affection Inordinate affection, they become idols. Inappropriate objects of adoration. We must not forget that only the Lamb is worthy of our worship. And thirdly, remember that only one life will soon be passed. and Only what's done for Christ will last. Only what's done in Christ's name will for his sake, for his glory, will survive the judgment seat of Christ. And brethren, when we remember that God reigns and that Christ alone is worthy of our praise, and when we live with eternity in view, we'll be able to navigate the ups and the downs of life mourning to joy, from weeping to praising, from earthly horrors to heavenly hallelujahs. Amen. Let's pray.